Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com you're listening to c103's cork today podcast phone and text lines are currently closed And a very good uh, Wednesday morning. We're halfway through the week. Wednesday morning to you as we welcome you along to the programme with uh, Bernie taking your calls, sitting in for John Paul for a couple of weeks. So 818-103-103. And I can already see texts coming into us and WhatsApps. Keep them coming, please. 0862-103-103. And I want to start by going back to yesterday because unfortunately on the programme yesterday, I retired a poor man uh, who uh, isn't retired at all. And that's Dr. Colin Gleeson. I got a request him uh, to wish him well in his retirement and that was followed up by another couple of requests of people talking about what a wonderful doctor Dr Colin Gleeson was and wished him all the best in his retirement. Lo and behold, one of his patients w- rang his wife to say didn't know that Dr Gleeson was retiring while Dr Gleeson was inside in the surgery working away. So we are glad absolutely glad to reiterate that he's not retiring and he is very much continuing to work in his practice in Castletown Bear and continuing to serve his uh, patients and look after the good people of uh, Beira. So sorry for any confusion around to Dr Colin uh, Gleeson who has been in the Beira area. He actually came and started as the medical officer at the local community hospital there St Joseph's uh, Community Hospital fell in love with the place and decided oh, this is a good place to set up a practice and he did. He set up a a practice some 43 years ago now he set up his practice and he continues as he says in a lovely email to me to love his work so he's continuing uh, to work away as a GP looking after the people of uh, Beira and recently he said a patient was in who reminded him that Dr Gleeson has looked now looked after with obviously the birth of a new baby has now looked after five generations of the one family that's an an incredible record indeed so continued good luck and good health to Dr Colin Gleeson who very much is not retiring from general practice in Castletown Bear so I'm glad uh, to just to correct that uh, incorrect statement that we made yesterday uh, Bernie as I say taking your calls 0818103103 lots of the, of the papers today and all of the news wires still full with what's happening temperature rise across the world and temperatures day on day they seem to be breaking new records and now there's the added problem of authorities they really are scrambling to try to roll out as much relief to people as uh, possible Rome 
was among several European regions yesterday to once again breach records that had been set earlier on in the week. That's prompted what they're describing as COVID-style protocols to be rolled out across uh, Italy. And what they're now trying to do is to protect their hospitals in the content of the unprecedented heatwave and the amount of people that are ending up needing medical care. A new record was set in the Italian capital when the local weather agency recorded highs of 41.8 degrees Celsius. The previous day, or last June, that record had been set. It went up by one degree Celsius this week with that new record. And the European Space Agency, they're monitoring, obviously, the temperatures right across uh, Europe. And they say... Temperatures went to 48 degrees in Sardinia and uh, Sicily, while the temperatures in Rome and Madrid both uh, reached the low to mid-40s. And then uh, close by in what is now drought-stricken Spain, temperatures reached highs of 44 degrees in Catalonia and on the Balearic uh, Islands. And of course, it isn't just in Europe. You've got large areas of Asia, large areas of the United States, all suffering these extreme weather conditions. And with the record-breaking heatwave in Europe, it's expected to continue into next month. National authorities now scrambling to try to roll out as much relief measures as they can to try to help citizens who are sweltering from the heat. And of course, a lot of these are holiday hotspots. So they're not just looking after their citizens, they're looking after the people who are on holidays. So the Italian emergency departments, they've been ordered to activate what are called heat codes. And that's where specialist teams of staff are deployed to deal with patients whose symptoms are being exacerbated by the heat. Now, the system was last used in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. And we remember we all watched scenes coming out of Italy and what was happening in their emergency uh, departments. Uh, Italy, also in other parts, local authorities have opened up municipal swimming pools and they've opened them especially for elderly people. And they've opened what they've called blue spots at local beaches. And what what they're doing there is they're handing out free umbrellas and lunches. And they're doing that for uh, vulnerable uh, people. And the European Union uh, said it is going to send four aircrafts to Greece. And that's to help tackle wildfires that have forced people to evacuate their homes. 7,000 acres of land is now in ash in uh, Greece. And of course, wildfires are the big problem with this heatwave. There are uh, similar blazes have occurred uh, with emergency responses in Switzerland, in Malta. And of course, we're seeing it in the United States. There's a lot of wildfires there as well. In Germany, doctors recommended people taking a siesta at noon to try to help with the heat and uh, to stay productive. The German Federal Association of Public Health Doctors says that with the temperatures across Europe on the rise, that that country should follow the example of Spain. And as we know, siestas are a common practice in Spain during the warm uh, weather. So that's what they're asking the German people to do. And then in Poland, I was reading about uh, trade union officials. They are calling for the introduction of a stop to all work when a maximum temperature is reached. And I do know that happens in Australia for people working on building sites and outdoor workers when the temperature gets to a sudden, very, very high. There's a a particular figure that they uh, use. Then everybody downs tools and goes home and it's to protect workers. Because we did have a worker in, wasn't it in northern Italy last week, a man in his early 40s, he was painting road signs 
and um, he was found dead and uh, it was attributed to the heat. And Ralph Regal in The Independent is, um, it was it was chatting with a couple, an Irish couple who were on holidays in Greece at the moment and they were talking about how the heat wave there is affecting them. They've described it as being unbearable and when they decide to go for a dip in the sea uh, to try to cool down, you can't stay in it very, very long because they said even going into the sea, it feels like a hot tub. Isn't that absolutely bizarre? It's uh, Dana O'Halloran and her boyfriend Adam. They're visiting Athens and the islands off the Greece coast. They're on an eight-day trip. Now, Athens, anyone that's ever been to Athens in the summertime will always tell you it's always unbelievably hot there. So most people land in Athens and then move off out into the islands. So um, Dana O'Halloran said that the heat just doesn't go away over here. It is there constantly. She said it's so different to normal sun holidays. As soon as you walk out, she said it's like as if you've opened an oven and you step into the oven. The heat simply hits you in the face. And of course, they'll be coming out from air conditioning. The minute you go outside, you just get this blast of heat. She said it's very hard because it really drains you, even if you're out for as little as an hour a day. And she was talking about they went to the zoo in half way around she had to sit down she literally could not keep uh, going the couple have been dealing with temperatures as high as 39 degrees uh, in uh, Greece and late evening it doesn't get any cooler you know usually you think oh the evening will come it'll be nice and cool she says the evenings the lowest it got on the in the evenings is at 32 uh, degrees and uh, she said on one night this week the moon actually came out and it was bright red and a bright pink colour so that everybody was out taking uh, photographs uh, of it. So not sounding like the best holiday ever for that uh, couple, uh, for sure. So that uh, heat wave continuing and it certainly is going to intensify this week. But the indications now for the meteorologist is that it's going to continue into next month, into August as well. 0818103103. Don't think we'll be complaining too much about the rain in this country. You can text our WhatsApp 0862. 103 103. Talking about what's going on around the world with the rising temperatures and the heat wave uh, that we are seeing. Jerry says, Patricia, the rising temperatures is, according to scientists, the result of the sun getting hotter and solar radiation, which we can do nothing about. All the global warming measures will do nothing to decrease the rising temperatures of the sun. The sun being a star, as we are seeing signs of the sun entering a red phase. Kind regards from Jerry. So I decided to check that out. Is the sun getting hotter? Well, Jerry, according to a, a report I've just briefly read, I'll have to read it in more detail when I come off air. This, this is according to NASA and I would trust NASA. They say the sun is not getting hotter. What's happening is the amount of radiation being trapped in the Earth's atmosphere is increasing and that's due the, to the burning of the fossil fuels and that's that when that heat can't escape the Earth's atmosphere, that's when we get uh, changes in uh, temperatures. So no, according to NASA, uh, the uh, sun is not getting hotter. As I say, I will have to read that report in uh, more detail, but thank you. Uh, for your uh, text and here's an email that we had in and I want to give this out because I'm I'm fearful that this may have happened to other people as uh, well uh, it says Patricia this is unbelievable I purchased a two way ticket to travel on the M50 now uh, what um, Sean means by a two way uh, ticket is paid for the tolls both up and down. The purchase date was the 30th of June. I travelled up overnight to Dublin Airport and I flew out the uh, following morning, returning then on the 8th of July, driving back to Cork. Today, I received in the post a penalty notice for €7, stating if I don't pay it, it will rise to €46.50. 
I decided to phone E-Flo all together. And at first, I have to say, God, what I can only describe as a very abrupt person on the phone who informed me I've received the notice because I travelled back after the toll had increased on the 1st of July. But I could give her a credit card detail to pay the 30 cents and it would be covered. I said, this is completely crazy. But she got even more abrupt with me. So guess what? I simply gave up. I decided to phone again in the hope of getting a more friendly person on the phone, which I'm glad to say I did. She was prepared to put in a complaint for me as I paid in good faith and have absolutely no intention of paying this ridiculous charge. By the way, it's not the 30 cent, but it's the principle that they can even do it. Just imagine if I'd been away for longer and the penalty notice kept on piling up. Imagine if you buy something in a shop and then the price goes up the next day. Would you be expected to pay the difference? Imagine if you booked an airfare and before you travel back, the price goes up. So they ask for you to pay more. As you can imagine, I'm very annoyed and really cannot believe that this has been uh, allowed. I'm just wondering if any of your other listeners are in the same uh, boat enjoying your programme. That really seems crazy. I mean, I would have thought the fact that you prepaid, they should acknowledge the fact that the the toll hadn't gone up when you actually did the transaction. And obviously if you went in to do it then um, the following day or on, on a subsequent trip, you would obviously have to pay the extra 30 cents. But I don't know if that has happened to anyone else. And, and then I can understand the shock that you get when a penalty notice arrives and there you're thinking, well I paid the toll. And, and I have to say it's something I always do if I'm travelling uh, particularly to Dublin Airport. I'll always make sure I have the toll up and the toll back done because I remember one year going away on holidays and I'm one of those people I'm really bad at knowing my car registration number and I'd forgotten to pay the toll and when I got to my destination overseas I went to try and pay the toll to realise I couldn't remember my car registration number which was uh, and I knew I was going to have all of these um, fines and penalty notices if I didn't pay it within the uh, 24 hours so that does seem I certainly Sean agree with you keep fighting that one and let us know how you get on but I'm wondering has it happened to anybody else you prepaid your toll and then the toll went up and then suddenly you're getting this penalty notice because they want you to pay the difference between the old price of the, what you paid and the increases. 0818 103 103. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Today on C103. A breast cancer patient and scientist who spent decades developing medicines and undertaking clinical trials has now turned investigator to try to find out more about how to help women such as herself whose disease has spread. Siobhan Gaynor is from Castleknock in uh, Dublin and Siobhan joins me this morning. Good morning to you Siobhan. Good morning, Patricia. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, it's, it's great to talk to you. We'll, we'll chat in, in a minute about your, your research, but can we start with your own story and when you were first diagnosed? Sure, Patricia. So um, in 2019, early in 2019, um, I noticed some breast changes myself and um, I went to my GP and was referred um, for testing and unfortunately um, was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2019. Um, and further to that, after further tests, it was decided to undergo chemotherapy, surgery and radiotherapy, which all finished up at the end of 2019. And I was hoping to start 2020 with a renewed sense of just how precious life is. But it didn't work out like that. Unfortunately, I just continued to feel unwell and tired and eventually got some back pain, which again, I went back to my GP about. Um, and after a number of tests, 
during the pandemic, which was a tricky thing to navigate. Um, I was diagnosed subsequently in October 2020 with metastatic breast cancer, which is breast cancer that has spread outside of uh, the breast. And in my case, it was all over my bones. um, And that was why I was having back pain. Wow. And what goes through your mind when you get a second diagnosis? Is it very different to the first diagnosis? Absolutely, completely differently. Um, I think for me, um, as a scientist who also had worked in the breast cancer space, I was confident and knowledgeable enough about breast cancer to realise that whilst it's a tough road and a tough ordeal, um, you know, when it's over, it's over. And obviously there's other issues and side effects that may affect you. But at the same time, the cancer is gone, right? But with the secondary breast cancer diagnosis, um, unfortunately, it's currently incurable. So um, that means that I will always have cancer in my life and um, you have to work out how to accommodate all of that into your life and obviously to accept it, knowing that it's an incurable condition. That's a a tough thing to go through. And and was it at that point that you started to see, you know, these gaps in access to information or uh, emotional support, I imagine, very important at that stage? Exactly. It's all the non-tumor stuff, Patricia, that, you know, as a patient, um, really, uh, you're looking for support. You know, you feel confident and, and have trust in your medical team and hope they're looking after the tumor. But really, it's the non-tumor stuff. You know, things like um, your emotions around your diagnosis, you know, communication, who are you going to tell? What are you going to tell? What information is there out there in terms of um, how long you're going to live, um, you know, for your subtype, although nobody can give you accuracy on that. At the same time, I felt that all of those pieces were missing. And when I started to look at the scientific literature, which is what you do as a scientist, I realized there was a large gap there in terms of both the knowledge, um, but also what was needed and required for patients. Because thankfully, we're living longer with stage four diagnosis, which is a positive side of all of this. But then the question arises as to what, well, what you do with us and and what services do you need? Um, And we are the first cohort, really, of stage four cancer patients who are living longer. Um, And, you know, when you speak to the healthcare professionals, they also have questions. Um, around supports that are needed. So the idea for a piece of research starts to take shape at that point. Well, well done. And did you chat with other patients who were on sort of that, a similar journey to you? Absolutely. So um, when I was diagnosed with metastatic, I joined straight away a support group that um, Marie Keating Foundation um, run a support group for women in the same situation, positive living. The name appealed to me. And when I was speaking to other women um, and indeed doctors, um, we all had the same experiences. Um, And indeed, the patients um, in my support group um, have supported me every step of the way on this journey um, to the research survey. And they were involved in you know, first of all, determining what the question should be and how the questions are posed and what's possible and what information um, they felt was important. So um, it was a question of all of us coming together and, and in particular the 30 patients and deciding and refining what was important to us. Well done, well done. And there is a Cork uh, connection to this? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Professor Seamus O'Reilly, who's a consultant medical oncologist in CUH, you know, he jumped on board very early on when I spoke to him um, about the idea and has been a huge supporter and frankly wouldn't be possible without him. There's a lot of hoops and um, a lot of procedures that have to be done to get something like this up and running and um, his support has been, you know, heartfelt and genuine and I've been blown away actually 
by how much he has come on board with the survey. Yes, I have to say, uh, Siobhan, people speak so highly of uh, Professor uh, O'Sullivan. We can be very proud uh, to have him with us here in uh, Cork. So who are you looking for to take part in your survey? Well, the survey is for women um, or men with um, a diagnosis of secondary or metastatic breast cancer. But uh, I'd appeal to any of your listeners who um, know or are indeed someone who has experienced breast cancer, because those are the networks really that I'd love to see the survey pass through. You know, women and men with breast cancer, um, you know, or, or talk to each other. Um, and I would really love to see this survey pushed through those networks. Um, and from there, then on to the women who are unfortunately like myself and men who have advanced or secondary breast cancer. And what topics do you cover? What type of questions do you ask? So we're asking um, what their experiences as patients were of getting their diagnosis um, and prognosis information, what they felt could be improved um, if, if they were to go through that experience again and for those who follow behind us, what impact this disease has had on them personally, psychologically, and their family, and what, what has how has this affected them financially? Um, how much time does it take to, to live with this condition? Um, and what improvements would they like to see in terms of information and supports for themselves, but also for those who follow behind us in our tracks? Yeah, what, do you know what I really love uh, about this, uh, Siobhan, and what really grabbed my attention was the fact that it's developed for patients by patients. Exactly. And, and as Professor Seamus O'Reilly will tell you, you know, the, the, the field is moving, the cancer field is moving towards understanding that it's really the lens of patients or the view of patients that's most important in terms of determining what supports to put in place. And it is actually the non-tumor stuff um, that is actually in many ways most impactful. We, you know, we trust our teams to look after the tumor, but it's everything else. Um, and they're thankfully listening to us. Um, and this has been very well received in my experience by the oncology community in Ireland. And they've been hugely supportive. Yeah, and I know, as you say, you're primarily focused on secondary uh, breast cancer, but I'm assuming the the research and the results of, of this survey, it will have the potential to influence other advanced cancers and, and how they're treated. Absolutely. You know, and again, speaking to patients with all stage fours, you know, diagnosis, cancer diagnosis, colorectal, lung, prostate, etc., gynecological stage four cancers, you know, we experience a lot of the same things, although many of these um, stage four cancers affect us at different stages of life. In fact, our experiences are remarkably similar in terms of what we need. Um, so we really hope that after we've completed this survey, that other patient groups with, in different stage four cancer areas will, will take up what we've done and it's freely available to them to look at um, and develop it for their own conditions because we feel that a lot of the results we we will hope to get from this survey will, will ha- inform treatment and uh, supports that need to be available for other stage four cancers. Okay, and where are you, uh, Siobhan, currently at treatment-wise? So treatment-wise, um, thankfully, um, I'm still on the same chemotherapy as I was put on in October 2020. So I'm on chemotherapy for life, but okay. it's a, it's an oral tablet. I take it every day, three weeks on, one week off. And thankfully, my cancer has responded in that it's stable. It's not progressing. Um, I'm relatively well, although I did have to retire from work. That wasn't something that I was able to manage um, a couple of years ago. But nonetheless, I'm enjoying life. I'm traveling um, and I'm very grateful that um, I'm here to, 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 to do this research and I'm relatively well, thankfully. Well, we wish you luck with it and, and people can get involved on cancertrials.ie and I was on the Marie Keating Foundation website. It's also up, you can, uh, you can access it through that as well. 
that's really great to see and, and thanks so much for all your support. Well listen, good luck with it and uh, good health to you as well as Siobhan and thanks a million for joining us on the programme. Thanks a lot, Patricia. Good morning to you. Bye-bye, bye-bye. What a lovely lady. That is uh, Siobhan uh, Gaynor, who is a cancer patient herself, but she is behind that piece of uh, research. If you know anyone, or if you are listening to us and you were diagnosed with stage 2 breast uh, cancer, um, they really would want you. They're hoping to get about um, 300 patients with stage 4 secondary breast uh, cancer to get involved. So if you log on to cancertrials.com, dot ie or pass that information on uh, to somebody that you know please 0818 103 103 Bernie taking your calls you can text you can whatsapp to 0862 103 103 text or whatsapp Patricia with your comment 0862 103 103 talk to me Cork today on C103 now a little bit of welcomed news from AA Ireland with their latest fuel price survey showing petrol and diesel has remained stable this month and to find out more I'm joined by Blake Boland of uh, AA Ireland good morning to you Blake you're, you're welcome. Now, what's the main reason for prices remaining stable? Yeah, well, we've seen a lot of volatility over the last 12 months, as everybody will know, all right. But the markets are, are relatively stable at the moment, and we're on a nice little gap in between the reintroduction of excise duties as well. So we're seeing petrol um, at 165 and diesel at 155. So petrol was the same as previous month, and diesel was up two cents, but in the, the grand scheme of things, that's, that's quite a small increase and the previous month before that we did see the first stage of the restoration of the excise duties so if you remember going back a few months ago we saw prices up above two euros the government took measures and made large reductions they're coming back in now so we had one of those two months ago prices have remained stable but even if the market does stay very very stable as it has been we're still going to see prices going up a little bit more in september and then again in october how much how much are they how much is the excise duty going back on in september remind us so we're going to see five cents on petrol. Um, sorry, about, about five cents on petrol and diesel. And then October we'll see the final increases of eight cents on petrol and six cents on diesel. And then we'll be back up to where we were before we got the cost in 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 excise uh, duties. Yeah, so this is, a lot of people are saying that it's an increase and I suppose, yes, prices are increasing, of course, but it's a restoration of what was there beforehand. Um, and if you think back to the time where we saw prices above two euros, we all got a little bit of a dig out. Uh, but the cost of the living crisis is still going and this is going to hurt a, a little bit of people and, and some businesses as well who are just kind of struggling to make a little bit of profit at the moment. Mm. Uh, and are you seeing any other kind of upheaval that could cause prices to rise in, in the coming weeks and months? It seems to be relatively stable at the moment. Now, okay. the, the great thing, if we had the crystal ball, we could look into the future. And back when we saw things at two euros, we said, okay, so we got a little bit of help from the government. But some indications that we were getting was that there might be further increases. And in fact, the, the opposite happened. It came back down and it's eased off. So although prices are still quite elevated, you know, at that 150, 160 mark, it's nowhere near what it was. But look, yeah, if, if I could answer that question, we'd, uh, you know, myself and, and you, Patricia, we'd both be very, very well. <laughs> we would indeed, we would indeed. And I know you're giving average prices of 165 and, and, and 155. There's still savings, though, isn't there, to be had by keeping an eye on the forecourt prices? There absolutely is. And this is some, something that people should be doing. And you have to weigh it up a little bit as well. So, you look, we all we drive, you know, we might be dropping the kids off the crash or you go into work. So there's a radius around where we live and we're going to be driving by various petrol stations. And just keep an eye because you'll find that 
the garage down the road is that you know a couple of cents cheaper maybe but we'd also encourage people just just to think about it because if you drive 100 kilometers today next county to save yourself two liters yeah you're wasting your time you're gonna yeah. yeah so you might see oh look i've only got a half tank left and i know that that the garage down the road for me is quite cheap so i'll, I'll top up from a half a tank up to a full tank or something like that yeah so shop around there's some some businesses as well um ourselves we, we do discounts with some of the fuel retailers so if people are a little bit savvy they can they can find some some yeah, reductions some, there yeah, right. yeah and you also also looked at uh, prices for driving electric uh, cars. I was interested in in your your survey. Uh, the costs are pretty much the same, aren't they? There as well. They are that month on month. They are pretty much the same. So we, we worked out that your average EV in Ireland is going to be cost about one thousand one hundred and sixty euros to fuel for the year. But we have to be a little bit careful here. We talked about shopping around on petrol or diesel, and we might save you know two or three cents or something like that. But the difference is massive on EVs. So for example, that average that I told you about one thousand one hundred and sixty, someone who has got a let's say a nice boost meter, so they'll they'll only charge they'll they'll program their car to charge between two and four a.m. and they'll pay as little as four hundred and three euros per year. Whereas if you charge exclusively on a public network such as Ionity or ESB, you'll be paying just over two thousand euros, wow. five five times the amount. So uh, it, when we talked about shopping around for petrol and diesel and keeping an eye out for some bargains here and there, you really really have to do that if you're if you're driving an EV and you can make massive savings as we just talked about. And of course, uh, the big thing with the EVs, they're not paying the excise uh, duties that have been paid on the diesel and on the uh, petrol. The government take in a lot of revenue, don't they, from diesel and petrol? They do, yes. And and you may have seen, and some of the listeners might be hearing reports this morning of the, the tax strategy groups that they just released a report there. Um, and that is that they're basically showing that if if we meet our targets for electrification, you know, they're looking at putting something like a million EVs on the road. We're looking at a one and a half billion euro tax take shortfall per year. So this is absolutely massive. Um, now it's great that the government is you know, partly achieving their, our targets in reducing emissions. We've seen that dropping from, you know, about 135 grams per kilometre down to around 110. That's good news, although we're still well off targets. But the flip side of this, Patricia, is that the tax take is going down and the government are at some stage going to say, well, we need that money back. And they're looking at the, the biggest impact would be on SUV drivers. Um, yeah, so not necessarily at their SUV, but it's more about the weight. So they're, they're okay. going to try and make that... that, that that money back in some way. So we're we're looking at a shift towards weight-based taxation. Now, at the moment, if you, you know, if you're driving a combustion vehicle, so your petrol or diesel, the, the bigger the car, the more emissions, the more you tax you pay. In in general, there's going to be some exceptions in there, of course. But if you're driving an electric vehicle, so for example, if you buy a, a very very small uh, Volkswagen E up, you know, you're only paying 120 euros per year. But then you could also spend over 100,000 euros on a BMW iX, which is you know two and a half to three tons weight. And you're still paying that. So we might at some stage see the government saying, such as what happens in, in France, where you know, there's an exception on EVs at the moment, but you pay your certain amount of tax and then you pay 10 euros per kilogram over that threshold. So it's important to remember as well that this is not legislation that's coming in next month or next year. This is really just the government kind of flying the kite, seeing where the wind is blowing, getting a feel for what people think. Yeah, and congestion charges. I read in one of the papers that that it's is is still been an option considered by some officials. Congestion charges and the notion of has not gone away. Yeah, that's true. So there's, there's something called Project Bruce in the background, or <laughs> the, the government are looking at this. So we all go into the details on it. But congestion charges and and road user charging is is part of that. So look, we're, a lot of us here in Ireland, we've got family or friends who live in London, and they'll talk about congestion charges, and 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 we may be facing something like that. I 
possibly initially in Dublin, but, you know, Sligo, Galway, Cork, places like that. We, we, we don't know yet. This is all just, just testing the water. But, yeah, you may have to pay a certain amount of money to enter a certain part of the city. But so far, we've seen that largely being emissions-based. Um, but in time, as we're transitioning to electric vehicles, of course, this is all going to change. And what did you make of the EPA? Their uh, report out showing that the transport emissions continue to rebound and uh, to pre-COVID levels. No real surprise there, was there? That's right. Well, we're we're back out on the road a lot more. I mean, what happened during COVID was obviously tragic for many people, but we did see people staying at, at home a lot, not driving as much, um, obviously not getting as many buses, taxis, trains. So, of course, it was always going to drop and then it was always going to rebound as we're out on the, the road a lot more. And I don't know about you, Patricia, but I see it now. And even if, you know, I get up at six o'clock in the morning to hit the road to get into work early for some reason, that the, the roads are still full. So, yeah. so people are, are, are back. And, and this is... You know, part of the, the, the wider conversation on the electrification of transport and where we're going with, with emissions um, and, and looking at pe- getting people out you know, on foot or on bike um, but then even onto buses or trains a bit more and then making those electric in turn. But it also goes back to people who are living in, in rural areas. You know, the, the car isn't necessarily a luxury, it's a necessity. That's, that's right. And that's one thing that, that we would really be calling on, on the government to, to take into account is that, that divide, um, that, that difference in, in, in what we need, you know, whether you're living in Dublin city centre or, or rural Cork, uh, it, it's got very, very different way of getting around. And it's a necessity, as you said, for some people. So we need to make sure that we're, we're not hurting people who have no choice. There's, there's a lot of people out there and they're driving around and they're, they're 10, 10 year old, you know, petrol, Yaris or something like that. And they just don't have the money to go out and spend 50,000 euros on a new EV. So we need to make sure that we're not punishing the wrong person. So if somebody has 80 grand to spend on a, a very nice electric vehicle, yeah, okay, they're going to reduce their emissions, all right, but they have the money to go and do that. So we're still waiting on the used market for EVs to mature so that people can make those decisions to switch if they can. But as you said, Patricia, we need to make sure that, that this transition and what's happening is fair and it's not going to punish the, the wrong people. Yeah, actually, somebody's just asked, uh, brought in that question. Uh, somebody says, would you ask Blake, please, uh, when does he see second-hand EVs coming on the market? How long, how long is that going to take? So they, they do exist, all right. It's just that there's there's not very many of them. Yeah. Now we're seeing massive increases. So the, the, the previous year was 83% up in terms of EV sales, and we're going to see huge figures again. But it, it takes time for that to filter through. So if you get your car typically on, you know, on lease or PCP finance or something like that, you know, you've got it for three or four years. So it's going to take that time for, for these cars to, to kind of tumble down the ladder or to, to, to be secondhand and then be cheaper. So it will take time, all right. Uh, it's not something that's going to happen in the next year or two before we've got a thriving you know, market for EVs. This is going to take many, many years. But there are businesses out there who are dedicated to selling EVs. If you go down to your to your local garage as well, they're, they're going to have trade-ins all the time. So it's something to, to keep an eye out. Um, it, it can be very daunting for many people, but for many, many people that have gone electric, they're finding themselves saving a lot of money and, and having a very, very comfortable drive. Yeah, and Jonathan wants to know what about the price of new electric uh, cars? Will they start to come down? They are, yeah, and they are coming down as well. So one of the, the, the statistics in that report there was that 53% of the EVs being sold are under that €50,000 uh, threshold. So that's still a lot of money. But if we look at the average price of a car sold across the board in Ireland, that's still up around that €37,000, €38,000. But uh, there's, there's a lot of cheaper options there now. We're starting, you know, the, the Fiat 500E, the MG4 is a lot cheaper. Tesla re- recently dropped their prices there a few months ago by in and around eight or €9,000. 
you can get into a Model 3 for just over €40,000 now. Um, and if we compare that to, let's say, the, the cheapest Volkswagen Golf at the moment is in and around that €33,000, €34,000. So the prices are still elevated, there's no doubt about that, but they, they are coming down a little bit. And it's the long-term savings, isn't it? You've you got a way up. Yeah, people need to, to sit down. I mean, I, I don't know about you know, it wouldn't be the best. To, you know, people having to sit down with a spreadsheet and work it out, it could be a little bit, bit tricky to do, all right. But it, it definitely does pay to look into the, the long-term cost or what you might kind call the, the lifetime cost of these cars. So sit down, work out how much your tax is going to be, how much do you drive, you know, can you get a nighttime rate to, to, to put electricity into the car, um, think about uh, maintenance over time as well, and just kind of factor in that overall cost as opposed to what you might call the, the sticker price of 40,000 euros on the windscreen of a car. And there is a steady increase, isn't there, in people buying EVs? Oh, yeah, massively yeah, there. We, yeah. we just mentioned an, an 83% rise, you know, the previous two years, and already this, this year we're seeing massive increases. Um, and we're even seeing at, at times now, there it was two, two or three months ago, I think, where um, we saw electric cars outselling diesel cars for the first time ever in terms of numbers. Yeah, that was just a little bit, you know, in terms of uh, how cars were imported and, and uh, certain car, car company got a large delivery. But it still happened. Yeah, um, yeah. And you wouldn't have imagined something like that even three or four years no, ago. No, know? absolutely not. Listen, uh, Blake, uh, thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Uh, good morning. morning to you. That is uh, Blake Boland of AAI. Uh, 0818103103. Can I put a shout out to Mary in Rathgormack who contacted the programme earlier. Mary has a, is in, has a bit of a problem going on at the moment in that she has one of those accounts where, you know, you pay for your petrol or diesel on a fob at um, certain garages and something. I, I don't quite know what has gone wrong here, but poor old Mary ended up getting a phone call from the guards um, saying that she had filled had a fill of petrol in her car and drove off now it wasn't the case she had used the fob but obviously something went wrong uh, with it anyway uh, we just want Mary to make contact with us please she didn't leave her phone number because we're, we're trying to sort out the problem uh, for us so Mary and Rath Gormick if you can give Bernie a call back please at 0818 103 103 we just want to sort out what's going on for you at the moment and Bernie and Kilworth was on to us about the South Dock uh, problem in the North Cork area saying that that needs to be she reckons it, it should be brought up a doll level at uh, this stage and I know on Monday there was uh, a protest um, uh, over alleged plans to cut the out of hours service of the South Dock in Formoy that was held on uh, Monday uh, evening of uh, this week and I know tomorrow we're not going to get to it today we are going to be looking at this and dealing it in more detail tomorrow on the programme so anyone who's got concerns about the South Dock service particularly in the North Cork area uh, will deal with it uh, tomorrow. Now I was talking about the price of petrol and diesel on the programme AA and their latest survey out showing there's steady it's, it, we, we'd love to see it come down more but it's uh, the prices are steady at the moment and uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed and hope that they'll come down uh, even further but John Incove wants to dispute that because he said he got a fill of petrol it's for his lawnmower this morning and he says about three years ago it would have cost him five euro and I'm assuming he's using the same drum to fill up with the petrol that he needs for the lawnmower every time. And I'm also assuming, John, that every time you go in, it's empty. So you're getting the same amount of petrol. Anyway, 
three years ago it would have been a fiver. He said last month it was seven euro. He's been cutting the grass so he needed a fill this morning. He went back in this morning and said it was nine euro. Now that's not making any sense to me if the price of petrol and diesel is steady at the moment. How in a month it would have gone from seven euro to nine euro. I have no explanation for you at all uh, on that one. Only that the excise duty went back up. That would have brought it back up a little bit but not to, to have it. It's now nearly double you're saying what it was uh, three years ago 0818103103 Tim says the government doesn't need to restore the excise duty any further they're managing fine without it aren't we constantly hearing that the exchequer is awash with money would they ever leave the motorist uh, alone and we know that that's not going to happen Uh, Tim we've had the first of the increases Last month, we have another one due in September and then the following due at the end of the year. And that would bring it back up to where it was before. It was when petrol and diesel went over uh, two euro a litre that the government intervened. But yeah, I know the point you're making. They do seem to have a lot of money at the moment. And then Helen is wondering, why is home heating oil going up every week? Now, I haven't bought home heating oil. It isn't the time of year that I buy uh, home heating oil. So I'm not aware of uh, the price of home heating oil. I did read a piece about a week ago. Now, it was it was based in Northern Ireland, but we're, we're assuming it would be the same for, for us here uh, in the Republic as well, that uh, people were being urged to take advantage and get your home heating oil now because the prices are back to where it was in the pre-Ukrainian invasion levels because we know after Russia invaded Ukraine the price of oil uh, and diesel uh, shot up but we're told at the moment that was a week ago so I don't know uh, as I say I don't know the prices so I can't help you out on that one uh, Helen but has anybody else recently purchased home heating oil and would you agree with Helen she feels it's going up every week and I'm assuming that she's monitoring how much the home heating oil uh, is. Now I do know from carbon taxes that the government has legislated that there will be an increase in carbon tax every year and they're going to continue doing it until it reaches €100 per tonne Um, And that's expected to be somewhere around 2030. So it will mean on the next carbon tax increase, which is due to happen in October, a 60 litre fill of petrol and diesel will rise. Petrol will go up by 128 because of the uh, carbon tax increase and diesel will go up by 148. And at the same time, if you're getting a fill of a 900 litre kerosene tank, which is, you know, your standard uh, fill, that'll go up by just under 20 euro. But that won't be introduced until uh, next uh, May. But that's not what Helen is talking about. Helen is talking about the price at the moment, as I say. Don't know if anybody else has noticed that. 0818-103103. I also spoke with Blake Boland of AA about electric cars. And there's a huge increase in the numbers of people now buying electric uh, cars. Uh, that's prompted a listener to say, Patricia, I was watching a programme recently on the Discovery Channel and it was to do with electric cars going on fire. Did you know you can't put the fire out entirely because the electric car is full of cells and the batteries they just keep reigniting. The only way, according to this programme that the listener watched, is for the electric car to be submerged in water for a week That's what they do in Germany. This system feels that electric cars are not uh, safe. The only thing I'll say about electric uh, cars, 
and while they do go on fire, they are very rare. But when they do occur, an electric car fire can be extremely uh, dangerous. Uh, it's because of the chemicals that they generate and there's lots of toxic gases and, and whatever. I did, I was looking during the news when that text came in. If you do a quick Google search, you will see firefighters putting out electric fires. I think that they can use, uh, it's, it certainly isn't water, it's some kind of other uh, type of um you know, like a powdery stuff or something. I don't quite know the ins and the outs of it that can be used. But the only thing about it is they do happen, but they are rare, if that makes you feel any better or not. But some this listener would be worried about buying an electric car uh, because of uh, that. And Bernice was out in the city yesterday and she's just concerned about some of the antisocial behaviour that's going on on the streets of our beautiful Cork City. For She gave the example that they were out yesterday having an early afternoon catch-up with some friends. They were in a pub was about half two in the afternoon. She had having a quiet few drinks and uh, she said about an hour later, about half past three, a guy simply walked up to their table and knocked one of her friends to the ground. What was worse was uh, this guy was holding his young daughter at uh, the time. Uh, Bernice felt the city centre is getting very unsafe. And what she uses the word junkies. She says there's people uh, take, very obviously taking uh, drugs and she feels it's not safe and something needs to be done about it. I'm, and I know the City Council are very much looking at injection centres and they're hoping that that will help in some way and it has helped in other countries that have, have introduced injection uh, centres, safe injection centres for drug users to go to 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 have, to, to shoot up, uh, to inject themselves uh, and unfortunately when they get addicted to these drugs it is very very difficult indeed but that seemingly was uh, a quite a scary situation Bernice I don't know if you called the guards or whatever but not a nice thing to happen when you're out just trying to uh, in catch up with a few friends and enjoy a few drinks 0818103103 Bernie taking calls you can text her WhatsApp to 0862103103 C103 Jobs we have a vacancy for a store salesperson. You must have a knowledge of mechanics and agri-equipment. It's wanted for a busy parts department in Mallow. It may suit a part-time farmer as flexible hours are available. You email sales at technicnix.ie for further uh, details. While Fitzgerald Construction, they're based in Mallow, they've got vacancies for both skilled and semi-skilled operatives, full driver's licence and safe pass are essential, and the ability to work with general power tools. CVs please to info at fitzgeraldconstruction.ie CE schemes are available in Churchtown, Fremont, Liscarroll, Milford and Dramina. Now applicants must be in receipt of a qualifying social welfare payment for at least 12 months. You apply to your local intro office or you can phone Evelyn on 085 866 4839. And full and part-time mobile security officers are wanted as for night shifts in the North Cork area. CVs to accounts at guardforce.ie or you can phone 022 51427. You'll find all the details and many more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Cork Today on C103.
And a reminder to you that our Hours to Protect uh, feature continues every Friday. So it will be on this uh, Friday. And this week we're looking at how the ocean is threatened by overfishing. It's threatened by pollution and it is uh, by the destruction of coastal and deep sea habitats. Uh, we will also look at how fish stocks can be rebuilt. Critical natural habitats can be uh, protected and uh, pollution levels are reduced and that's all on Hours to Protect Our Feature uh, which is on every Friday at about uh, 11.45. We'll take a look at that uh, more on uh, Friday. Now, this is one that I came across and I mentioned it earlier on to Ken because it's a new word for me. It's called fubbing. It is to do with the amount of mobile phones and the amount of time we spend on our mobile phones. Uh, Now, we're constantly being told that we're too attached to our mobile phones and only this week we were highlighting cases of people witnessing families who were all out having a meal together, nobody interacting with with each other because everybody's just staring at their mobile phone or the children are on their tablets, uh, etc. But researchers now are taking a look at how our mobile phone use, how it can be damaging to our love, li- love lives. And a study is being conducted into the effects of a new word, as I say, that has um, come into our lexicon. And the new word is fubbing. Now, what is fubbing? It's basically snubbing somebody else because you're using your phone. So instead of just snubbing them, your, your, your head is stuck in your phone, so you're fubbing them. And it found that married married couples who engage in this practice actually have lower levels of satisfaction within their relationships. The team of uh, scientists at a university in Turkey said the phenomenon was widely observed everywhere in today's technologically advanced societies. And I think, yeah, I think we all, we see it out in the public, uh, but we're seeing it now more and more in people's houses. So the researchers explained when individuals perceive that they their romantic partners are fubbing more frequently. They're on their phone instead of talking to them. They feel there's more conflict and obviously that leads to less intimacy in the relationship. So in the study that has been published in the journal Computers in Human Behaviour, the researchers enlisted 712 married couples. Now they had an average age of 37 and the participants then were surveyed on their marriage satisfaction their fubbing tendencies and obviously they also got to talk to them about their communication uh, skills and the study's lead author said that at the end when they took a look at all of the research that the research demonstrated the power of effective communication especially among romantic couples. Marital conflict mainly occurs when people are ignored by those that they value and this ignorance then leads to lower relationships satisfaction and may actually uh, impact on people's personal well-being. Uh, They say that people should be mindful about being present with their loved ones to show them that they care. And you do that, how? By putting your phone away. And this isn't the first uh, study because there was another study that came out about uh, two years ago that showed that fubbers are more likely to, this is much more serious, they're more likely to have certain mental mental health issues. This was research that was carried out in the States. It was the University of Oklahoma and they found that uh, people who suffered with depression are much more likely to snub their friends than those who don't suffer from depression and somebody with depression would prefer to be sitting all day and all evening 
just on their phone, scrolling, scrolling uh, away. But now it's the first studies out that is showing that if you are constantly on your mobile phone, it can actually affect your relationship. So I think the whole thing is, is to push the phones down, please, and interact with your loved ones. It shouldn't really come as any real surprise. Uh, 0818103103. Bernie is taking your calls. Uh, you should text our WhatsApp to 0862. 103 103. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Cork Today on C103. Now, last week, the French government introduced an environmental repair bonus scheme, which will allow people to claim back anything between €6 and up to €25 from the government towards the cost of mending clothes or repairing shoes. Now, and with so much being spoken about with the circular economy. Should our government look at introducing a scheme like the one that the French government have done? Should they introduce it here? Isaac Jackson comes from a family of cobblers and he thinks we should follow the French lead. And I'm delighted to say Isaac joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Isaac. Ah, good morning. How are you? I'm very well. Now, this is all about cutting down on uh, fashion waste. As a cobbler, how busy are you at the moment? We're very busy at the moment. Uh, Well, we have been busy for a long time, but in the current climate, I suppose, with the buzzwords around like uh, upcycling and recycling and and repairing, yes, we're extremely busy, which which is great. And it's not just shoes you you bring along to the cobbler. Oh, God, yeah. We we do all types of different wild and wonderful things. I suppose uh, you could have anything from a golf bag, handbags, you know, it's basically repairing any leather items. You know, it's it's it's, a, it's across the board basically. But the shoes are our main, um, you know, it's our main part of our business. So, and can most shoes be repaired? It, well, this is a good question because a lot of people have the misconception that uh, a lot of shoes can't be repaired. But that's one thing that I suppose where um, I've adapted over the years because. I don't like to say no when a customer tries to bring something to be repaired. I like to adapt and try to learn and understand how we can circumvent, come around the problem. Because a lot of shoes are very difficult to repair because the manufacturers make them in a way that they'd like to think that they're not repairable, you know. And this this is an issue, obviously, we have. But most shoes, yeah, I, I would say probably 90% of shoes can be repaired. Well, but su- subject, subject to costs, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, I know you are more than uh, 30 years in, in the business and, and you do come from a family of um, cobblers. But just looking back at the last 30 years, Isaac, for yourself, how has the industry changed in that time? I've changed quite a lot. I mean, my father established the business in the 50s. Um, obviously, it was a different time then. Everybody got, got uh, items repaired. We weren't in that consumerism, that disposable society. And obviously, as the years went by, um, uh, footwear, uh, talking about footwear, became um, uh, more disposable, more you buy to not repair. And that was decimated the industry. So the, 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 the cobbler, the, the repair, unfortunately, the business wasn't there. And it was only the very few who survived through it. One of a, being being one of us, I suppose, and I, the question is being how did we adapt and whatever. You know, I came into the business over thirty year, years ago with my father as a, as a uh, an apprentice, as such. You know, working alongside him, and I saw that you know the footwear was very difficult uh, to repair because it was disposable, nearly footwear. It was, it was cheap, um, and we had to adapt to try to uh, circumvent again. We have to work around those shoes, make them repairable in some way and to, to, to survive. 
And, and, and then I suppose I saw an opportunity that people still had good footwear and still wanted them repaired. And so we needed to make sure that that, that work was being done uh, very uh, up to a, a good standard. And so people would, you know, go and come back and get their shoes repaired. And I suppose it's just a testament of time and dedication to the business. Yeah, and it really is, you, there's so much savings to be made here in investing in a good pair of shoes. And then if, you know, the, the, the heels wear down or the soles wear down, go in and get them repaired. Well, yeah, I mean, in the medium to long term, buying a, a, a good pair of shoes is, is, a, is a good investment. And buying a cheap pair of shoes, I mean, it's quite obviously, if you look at it, it's not a good investment. It's not a good investment for anybody, but the environment for, your, you know, your pocket, etc. I mean, so, yeah, it, it is wor- worth buying a little bit better to uh, survive and, and, and last longer. Um, and it's just generally good for everybody. And back in the day, back in the 50s, when you, your dad was first starting out and then building up his, his business, would he have had many cobblers working for him at one time? Yeah, he built the business from scratch, from, from nothing, basically, up to 22 shops in Whoa. Dublin alone. Whoa. So he was a big player in the business. Uh, you know, he, he kind of, uh, it was amazing, really, as a, as a kind of a very young person, an entrepreneur, coming through and seeing that um, and, and, and developing the business and understanding, obviously, what people needed and wanted. But again, that was the thriving t- times of the shoe repair business. You know, back in those days, uh, shoes were made to be repaired. Um, and and then when the, the footwear changed, it just was it, it was it was a, like a nail in the coffin um, for the industry. It was just very hard to recover from that because it was decades of um, of cheap footwear. And did he continue working to a ripe old age? He start, He worked all the way up until nearly 80, 80th years of age. Wow. Um, and uh, he, he, I suppose I came along to ease the burden a little bit. Um, he passed away at 82, but he worked up to his late 70s. which Goodness. you know, it Goodness. was it was It was therapy for him in the end as well, because it was, it was what he built up. And he was very appreciative of seeing me taking it on and making it go forward into the future, making it um, sustainable, basically. Mm. Yeah, I, I have a wonderful local cobbler, but of late he only works part time. Um, is it a dying industry, Isaac? Again, this is I get asked this question all the time, I mean, and it, it seems to be bantered about that. Yes, it's a dying industry. For me, it's not because um, we've seen all the good and the bad times. Well, I've seen a lot of good and bad times, and um, we're in a, a position at the moment that there is great opportunity um, with the whole circular economy. So if you're doing the repairs, if you're doing it properly and you're, you're um, doing comprehensively, you know, there is a future there. And it's, the problem is that if you refuse work, if you don't do the work and you don't do it properly, there is the problem. I mean, and, and, and this is where the, the business just, or the, the industry uh, has, has kind of failed. Are there any apprenticeship programs out there? No, and yeah. this is another, yeah, this this is a problem because it's all been left up to the industry just to limp along uh, for years. We've never had a representation or a body like in other countries, possibly in the UK, they have um, some bodies and and, and uh, apprenticeship schemes. We've had nothing going back to the days uh, of, of when I started. You had FOSS, uh, yeah. and FOSS was a was an apprenticeship scheme, and they had a shoe repair apprenticeship scheme back then. That was dropped. Oh, I can't. I can't give you a date, but it was in when I nearly started in the business, and they never. Nothing has come up since. There's been no investment into it. There's been no 
um, uh, participation from anybody. Um, we'd love to see something like that to, to come along. I, I was only speaking to Michal Martin um, a couple of weeks ago about this, and I spoke to Oshin Smith, the Minister for the uh, Circular Economy, and, you know, we'd love some encouragement there. Um, and, you know, uh, by, from my conversation with, with Michal Martin, he seemed very on board and positive. He understood. Um, now, obviously, it's only you know, two weeks ago, so we don't expect anything happening that quickly, but it'd be nice to see a follow-up on that. Did you repair his shoes when he was I did, in? I did, I did repair his shoes. I and mean, you know he's a good cork man, as yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well done, well, well, well done. Because I think, you know, as a society, um, Isaac, we have to get out of this mindset that if something is worn or damaged, uh, that we just throw it out and replace it. We, we've, we've got to go back, get back into this mindset that things can be repaired. Yeah, we, we education. It's, I, I, that's one of my buzzwords on this. The education is key. Education, not only from you know uh, the adult education, but getting back to the kids, the schools. You've got to get in early, like all education, um, and you've got to start from the ground up. And you've got to tell people, explain to people, and tell people what what can be done, um, and and why they're doing it as well. You know, it's not just for the sake of you know just repair something for the sake. Of it, but I mean. At the end of the day, they're doing something for the environment. They're saving money. So, yes, I mean, all this has to be uh, brought up uh, into the media as such and from the government as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it in a, a nutshell. Uh, here's an example from Fanula. She bought a pair of shoes and she said the buckle broke and when she went back to uh, the shop, the shop were just going to give her a refund because they didn't have another pair of the shoes and she said, what are you going to do with them? And he said, oh, we'll just toss them in the bin and she said, oh, no, 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 I want these shoes. She took them to a local cobbler and he fixed her for a fiver. See? Yeah. Well done. Well done, Fano. Well done. That's the way to do it. And do you love doing what you're doing, Isaac? Oh, you have to love this business. It's a passion. It's a, you eat, breathe and sleep it. I mean, it's not a case that you just come in and you're nine to five or whatever like that. No, it's, it's a passion. I'm very, you probably get, you gather from what I, how yeah, I, yeah, I, I can, yeah. It. It, it's very passionate. I'm very passionate about it. And, um, you know, I, I, I just, from, I suppose, from a very early age, because I was brought up in the family of, of the business as well, but um, I grew to love it very quickly. And, um, you know, I'm here, but, you know, I'm 54 years of age. I still think there's a future for me. <laughs> there's a there few is, more years left in me. Um, but I worry for the future. I do worry for the future um, coming along because if people like me um, go out of the business or, you know, if, you know for natural, um, come, you know, retire or whatever, who's coming along yeah. and that does worry me it does concern me yeah and we, we've, we've lost so many of those little yeah. shoe repair uh, shops yeah. and the skills with it and yeah with well it. listen hopefully the politicians will uh, listen to you Isaac I'm in looking, the meantime I'm looking forward to it really, yeah. really enjoyed our chat thank you for that no problem any time thank thanks, you uh, thanks for joining us that is uh, Isaac Newton who is a cobbler in Dublin hard to believe that his dad back in the day had 22 shops and actually Isaac now is down to uh, two uh, it can be hard at times to even find a, a cobbler in your area. 0818103103. Now moving on to a completely different issue because according to the Garda Representative Association, the Garda are only able to provide a skeleton response to communities as staffing shortages and operational changes are now forcing members to cover a wider geographical area. John Parker is the Cork Rep for the GRA and John joins me this morning. Good morning to you, John. 
Good morning again, Patricia. And it's great, great to speak with you as always. Now, was the closure of so many Garda stations, do you think that was the, the, the link broken between a lot of communities and their local Garda? Indeed, uh, Patricia, I suppose, uh, feet on the ground and somebody locally um, as a connection between the force and the community um, has always proven to be the ideal situation <clears throat> and um, it's not about having a guard sitting in a guard station but it's about having a base in the local community to work from you know to uh, head out and patrol car on, on patrol off up the country roads for miles but having a place where people can go to um, and in confidentiality deal with issues paperwork or passport applications or whatever and often we'd hear over the radio that there's someone at such and such a station and would the patrol car return to deal with them you know and and that's how we operate boots on the ground but you know a base to work from is, is is fantastic yeah and do you get frustrated then when you hear people say oh we never see Gardaí out and about there's never any Gardaí in our area does that frustrate you um do you know something? It 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 does because um, like people expect to see a guard either in some occasions in the high urban areas on every corner. But um, <clears throat> between a lot of the the jobs we are tasked for, you know, you the, it would be foolhardy to place a guard and a patrol car at a strategic location and leave them there all day simply for the purpose of high visibility, which was a situation that occurred many many years ago. You may as well have a cardboard cut cut out there, you know. Mm. You can't cover everything, and you know um, we we do have um, units uh, travelling the highways and, and byways continuously on on patrol. It's just we do get called away from our duties for a large number of administrative and other issues such as courts, um, courses, um, you know, so um, with the numbers the way they are, the extraction rates to, to other things leaves very few on the ground for general patrolling. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, the, it's really, it's the numbers is what we're talking about. Is, is retention still a problem, John? Yeah, um, generally before we would get bulletins and there would be, you know, a, a steady stream of um, a small number of retirements but the numbers of resignations specifically has snowballed and um, we're, we're now receiving almost one and a half to two times the numbers of um, resignations that we did in, in uh, pre, even ordinary years pre-COVID 2017, 18, 19 we're well up in it but what really isn't being reported is the fact that a large number of guards are taking their retirement at the earliest possible opportunity. We've often had guards who stayed on and they went right to the wire to the last day that they could serve. But these days, most people, you know, when the opportunity comes, they're just jumping ship and getting out because it's a, a change scenario. The, the, the workplace, the, the tasks, the bureaucracy um, and and really a lot of it is work-life balance and the recent announcement as regards the roster has uh, put the cat among the pigeons with our members because they are hugely frustrated over the last number of months and we would have expected that Garda management would have taken this on board and would have left members on what is a a family-friendly and a well-balanced roster and would have left members on it until roster negotiations and WRC, etc. were over. But unfortunately, yesterday, the commissioner made a, uh, a yeah, very Drew sharp Harris. announcement. Yeah, 
He yeah. he announced his he is uh, he'll be rolling back roster arrangements for Gardaí. They were introduced during uh, COVID nineteen. Now just to explain to people, the change will see Gardaí moving from usually working twelve hour shifts for four days, and then you get four days off. Instead, now you go back, and I'm assuming this was an old roster where you do ten hour shifts for six days, and then you get four days off. Yeah, from 2012, we worked uh, six days on, four days off, 10-hour shift roster with five units, and there was overlaps. But management themselves found that the overlaps were in the wrong places, and they didn't need the high peaks at them certain days and then low valleys of, of manpower at later stages because of the five units. And all through the negotiations, the commissioner had been stating that the six-on, four-off roster would not be possible for the regular guards. That's the guards who go out and deal with the everyday calls from the traffic accidents to the um, tips from shops, the drive-offs from petrol stations, the robberies and whatnot, the, the uniform member you see on the ground. And it did specifically said that it was unworkable and would not be possible to, to return to that because of the lack of numbers. And then suddenly yesterday, um, with an hour's notice, the associations were called to a meeting and told uh, basically that we were going back to that. And now if that's a strategic uh, position being taken, um, a lot of members have reported back to me that they feel the gun is to, to our heads at this point in time, that it, that it's an unnecessary move and um, that it's basically to, you know, push us into a corner. And I, I fear for the situation that we're getting into because... Um, the roster we were on meant that guards married to guards could work out uh, child minding etc yeah um it's it's it, when you have one unit finishing and another unit starting it's very easy to to deal with issues but because of the unsocial hours of a roster it's very very hard for guards to get um child minders that can work in with the um, fact that you could be called at a moment's notice to go to court or your shift could be changed the day before you know or your shift could be changed and then 10 minutes beforehand you could be cancelled you know so we have guards paying for child minding and not having to avail of the child minding because things have been cancelled and you still have to pay your, your child minder you know relationships are um, in difficulty over a lot of the situation It's it's disappointing that Drew Harris made this announcement especially when he knew making the announcement how this was going to go down by rank and file members he yeah, was, He's um, well aware of it Strategically, I think it's to, you know, it's to push people to the situation whereby the devil you know is, is better than the devil you don't, and just you know, and that we would, I suppose, come back with a begging cap in hand, looking for moves. But you know, honestly, this roster has been pushed by management as being the best roster available and suits their needs and management from superintendent chief superintendent on uh, upwards um the people that are on the ground they're on the front line have been stating that they they required a roster where one shift finished and the next shift took up because it gave them a, a constant um large number of members on the ground to police rather than as i said a valley where you have very few and then peaks you know mm. where you have too many and and you felt um, the covert one that came in the twelve hours, four days on, four days off, that was working. You felt, yeah, it 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 was working fantastically, except for the situation as well that it would be further enhanced with the recruitment. But you know there is a recruitment and retention crisis, 
Um, we have student guards going in on a training wage of 184 per week, whereas we, we know that if somebody is on, and I won't even say job seekers benefit where you have PRSI stamps, but job seekers allowance where, where you have nothing, people are on 220 a week with 146 for an adult pending. So you could come out with 366 euro. Being um, unemployed. If, being, being unemployed and you come out with 184 um minus obviously deductions for USE or PSA or whatever may be um there if you go in as a guard a trainee. God and how long would how long would you have to live on that for? Yeah, um the the initial training stages are a couple of months. Um you do move on, you know, to the increment scale and after that, after a couple of years, you know, the wages would, would normalise. Um in the Garda College, of course, you are provided with, you know, a room and board, but I mean a lot of members are married and they have kids so they have to support um you know a family home at home Impossible and mortgages 100, yeah. and whatever. So realistically yeah. We have people taking out um, loans for some of their training stages because it is a big commitment and they're trying to fulfil a vocation that they had in their eyes for a long time, you know. And th- there's other issues that hit the retention pensions for people who joined post-95 and even worse, all across the public service, people who joined after 2012 are hugely impacted. And we find that when people are in the job just a short number of years and they get wise to the fact that they're pension has been decimated they're jumping ship for the private sector that's why that's why we're losing them yeah because Bill in in Clans said he saw the figure that there are about 2,000 Gardaí have retired in the last uh, three years he's wondering would some of those retired Gardaí would they like to come back and work part time and do clerical work but judging by what you're saying John most of them are on the countdown to the day they retire they just want to get out of there yeah, I don't see most of those who have gone back, coming back, because those would be the people on, on the more decent regular regular pension. Um, and um, the fact that they made the seismic jump to, to get out early uh, means they weren't happy with the bureaucracy and the fact that there was less people around and inability to um, take annual leave. If you ask any, any guard in the country, most people have at least a year's worth of annual leave built up on top of what we've got for the current year. So, um, you know, there's guards with uh, last year's annual leave that hasn't been taken because they carried over from the previous year. Um, because they so weren't indeed, able to take it? Yeah, because of the, the there's a, a very low percentage allowed to take leave at any one time and you know, often there's occasions when people could be allowed to take leave, but leave isn't given because of the possibility or a slight possibility that if something happens, we may not have enough manpower, you know. Who can so it's frustrating. Who, who it's frust- very frustrating. Yeah, and, 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 and they're wondering why when they put out big ads to try and get people to join the guards, there isn't the pickup. I mean, once upon a time, you know, young people, it was the be all and end all was to get a place on guard the Shia and it was very hard fought contest to get in there. Now you can't get, you know, it's hard to get people into Templemore. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you've seen the recent initiatives where they're paying people basically to head on individuals to, to get them into the job. And, you know, I haven't seen the fully expanded details of the contracts that will be given out. You know, but I mean, the way to incentivise people into the job and to to retain them is to sort out the conditions. And I suppose the the one most on people's mind at the moment, um, and you can put pay on the back burner, and you you can put pension slightly on the back burner because it's something down the road. But the most crucial thing at this point in time 
is the roster and yeah. work-life balance and having a situation where you can have some few hours with your family before you have to go back into work again. And um, un- unfortunately, um, it, it looks like um, we're, you know, we're not being facilitated. And that would be the, the, the biggest retention um, bonus that would be there if this roster was uh, continued. OK. And, and John, what, what would you say to young people listening? Would you encourage them to become members of Angarda Shea in its current I, form? I, 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 I couldn't do one of these online um, advertisements that are up there as regards, you know, it's a job worth, worth doing and whatever. It is a job worth doing because it's very, uh, there's a huge satisfaction out of it. But as regards when people get in and they have to balance family life and tra- travelling and um, the fact that we will be going on to shifts that, that will not be as family friendly, um, uh, the fact that a lot of people um, with less than five years service, 15 to 20 percent of those uh, resigning are guards with less than five years service. So, I mean, they've dipped the foot in, in the water. They're fresh, they're young, they're enthusiastic, and they've just seen that the job is not what it's, what it's pain, painted for. It's very hard to balance things, and unless you can get the balance right, you, you're not going to retain people. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Okay, listen, uh, John, we leave it there. Thank you for that. Thank uh, you stay safe, and always great to talk to you. Good morning to you. Uh, bye bye. That is uh, John Parker, who is the Cork rep for the Garda uh, Representative association. Listen, says hi Patricia, I know to be honest that Gardaí are so busy with this huge amount of admin work that they have to do but wouldn't it be good to see them walking up and down the street every now and again for their own health sake and thereby getting to know the people of the community and that's what the Gardaí want to do. They want to be out on the beat as much as possible but there is a huge amount, even John was saying, of admin duty are being called to do courses, are being called into court and they can be all day uh, waiting around in court. 0818 103, My chat with uh, Isaac Jackman, was he a lovely man, the uh, cobbler, just talking about it's an industry that we're going to lose unless we start to do something to get apprentices in. And it's only when all the cobblers are gone, we'll suddenly have something that needs to be repaired. And we, we, we would be reminiscing and saying, remember when there used to be a cobbler nearly on every corner? of every town and uh, village but unfortunately we are losing so uh, many of them. Aggie and Bandon remembers in her school days her father had what she calls a cobbler's last. Now Bernie, our Bernie had explained to what the cobbler's last is and that's what they what you put the shoe on to uh, repair it the big steel heavy thing it's like an upside down shoe isn't it and uh, Aggie said her dad used to repair all of their own uh, shoes and that was something that was done in a former town time and then Mary was on to say a big shout out to the two uh, remaining cobblers in Mallow they can work miracles when it comes to shoe repairs and you know it was one of the reasons that we invited um, Isaac on there's been you know so much about the environment and so much about fast fashion and the circular economy and trying to make use of everything that we have and there was a time, I mean, he, I mean, you know, Isaac talking about, you know, when he started to work as a cobbler you know, 30 years ago, it wasn't that long ago, people would regularly go and have their shoes repaired and sold and healed. And, and, and we had Fanula telling the story of the shoes she bought and, and she really loved them. The, bu- the buckle had broken off. And when she went back, they, 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 they were going to give her um, a refund. But the shop said, oh, we'll just dump those. But she really liked them and took them down to a local cobbler in Bandon who fixed it for a fiver. So you can say, money uh, as well but it, it's just it's unfortunate if we're losing it as a trade we certainly need uh, it's good to see Isaac he sounds like a man on a mission he really is tr- to, 
determined to try and get some kind of an apprenticeship scheme going because that's the only way we will retain cobblers is if we have more young people looking at it as a possible career. 0818 103 103. And Tom was on to us to say he's delighted to see that the Minister for Justice is doing something about free legal aid. It always annoys uh, Tom to see people in court constantly getting free legal uh, aid uh, and he thinks he and he's questioning how much money is spent on free legal aid every year. Actually, I have the figure. The criminal legal aid last year, it costs the state 81.2 million. Now, I don't think that's the figure that Tom quite wants to, uh, to hear. Uh, but but yes, Tom is right. Helen McEntee, who is our current Minister for uh, Justice, along with the Minister of State for Law Reform, that's uh, James Brown, they've published the outline of legislation to reform the current uh, system and what they're suggesting is that people who make misleading statements about their finances when they go to seek legal aid, they could face up to six months in prison or a fine of four hundred four thousand euro under these planned changes to the criminal legal aid scheme and they're obviously looking at the amount of money i mean 81.2 million that's a lot of money to spend every year in the criminal legal aid bill bill and that's not taken away from people who genuinely can't afford legal aid and they deserve to get it i'm not in any way uh, faulting those people but are there people who are in some way scamming the system who are taking the free legal aid and really they could be paying for it uh, themselves so the changes are going to give the legal aid board more powers to assess the incomes of those who are seeking legal representation and what will happen is the board will be able to decide if somebody who requests legal aid is able to pay some of their own legal costs because at the moment it seems to be you apply for free legal aid you get it and then it's fully covered by the state and the court will be able to refer a person to the legal aid board for an assessment of their income if they fail to provide the key information and the legislation is seeking to make the justice system more victim focused and I think everybody will welcome uh, that and it will extend the type of assistance and advice that the Legal Aid Board can give to a victim. So it does look like it is moving in the right uh, direction and and I, uh, Tom is glad to hear that they are looking at how they give out free legal uh, aid but I don't think he's going to be too happy to hear 81.2 million, huge, huge amount of money on, on free legal aid uh, last year. Terrific to hear on uh, the news, uh, Vera Pau and the and our ladies, who of course are in Australia for their opening match in the Women's World Cup, and we have our fingers and toes and everything else crossed. This time tomorrow, that match will be well underway, and it seems the Republic uh, of Ireland uh, were given a, a real good boost with the confirmation that our own Denise O'Sullivan will start against Australia uh, tomorrow morning in uh, Sydney. Of, of course, we know. Uh, Denise has been making good progress since she suffered that very painful shin injury against Colombia last Friday and what was to be a warm-up friendly uh, match. It has left her wearing a protective uh, boot but she's been making good progress and it was Vera Powell, the manager. They had a pre- match press conference uh, earlier today and uh, Denise the Cork midfielder is good to go and she came through training on Monday and Tuesday with no adverse effects so that certainly is good news and it was also lovely to hear that the Irish team were greeted by the travelling green army of supporters when they touched down in Sydney airport 
earlier this morning. Of course, they've spent the last week at a training base in Brisbane. So they've been a bit away from all of that, from the fan uh, activity. And Vera Powell said it was really, really warming to see the reaction of all the people who were at the airport. And I know the captain, uh, Katie McCabe, she was with the manager for that press conference uh, this morning. And she said it really was special for all of the team because obviously they've been hearing and seeing some of the stuff online that has been going on but they've been a bit removed from it so she said they had experienced it all back in Dublin in the pre-camp she said, but it was just fantastic it was a great great uh, feeling for them and they really are delighted to see so many fans who have uh, travelled and obviously there will be a lot more Irish fans will turn up because we've got so many Irish people living in Australia at uh, the moment they're not underestimating the task that is ahead of them they are and they know that they are the underdogs but they they say they carry that title with great pride particularly coming from such a small uh, nation but they are prepared tomorrow night for a team uh, that has come to every single bar one World Cup to date whereas for Ireland they're the debutants it's the first time on this type of a stage but it's something that they're very uh, proud uh, of and they're not simply there just to take part they say you know they they want to compete they're going to give Australia tomorrow then Canada then Nigeria they're going to give them the hardest games uh, possible they say it is going to be really exciting they already know what Australia uh, have and that they're quality uh, all over the the pitch but they're good too and they've got they've got faith they're backing themselves uh, as well and as I say it is tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock Irish time that that match uh, gets underway and actually the echo today has a great photograph of Denise O'Sullivan's mum, Nula, with um, Denise's two sisters, Melissa and uh, Sinead. Now, they're back here in Ireland. And actually, according to the the Echo, the whole family, the extended family and the friends, they're all coming together to cheer on uh, the girls. And what they're going to do is they're going to meet in a city centre venue uh, to watch Denise uh, line out for their country. Her mum, Nula, said there will be no stopping her daughter uh, despite that recent industry. She said she's strong out, she has rested and she would hate to miss playing in the Women's World Cup. It's always been her dream. And as her mum, she's very proud of what her daughter has achieved. She said, little did I ever think she'd ever be a World Cup uh, soccer player. So we wish all of the team the very, very best of luck. But as I say, fantastic news for, I think, for the whole team, especially for all of us here in Cork, to know that uh, Denise O'Sullivan will start tomorrow morning against uh, Australia in the Acker Stadium in Sydney. We wish them all well. 0818 103 103. Bernie is taking your calls. We don't, we're not putting a shout out for gardening questions today uh, because uh, unfortunately Peter is not with us. Going to be back with us, uh, please God, uh, next uh, week. So hold off on your gardening questions. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. And a reminder to you that due to unforeseen circumstances, the Irish Blood Transfusion Service. They've cancelled what were planned donor clinics in Cork Mart in Fomoy uh, today but instead they're running alternative clinics. There's one going to be held in Coachford's GAA Centre today and that's between 4 and 8 and tomorrow they'll be in Riverstick Community uh, Centre again between 4 and 8. Anne-Marie O'Reardon is special guest at Fremount's Session this Wednesday starts at 8 o'clock tonight in Fremount Heritage Centre. Now Admission this evening, 10 
€1,000. And remember, the Kjoltis session runs every Wednesday night up to and including the 16th of uh, August. Shanagari Art Exhibition opens at my place, Mill Road in Middleton, this Friday night at half seven. It will continue then until the following Saturday week, the 29th of July, with a special sub-exhibition with affordable art with proceeds going to the Focus Ireland uh, Appeal. And as part of the cross-border healthcare initiative, uh, Kingsbridge Hospital will be holding clinics in West Cork for those who are waiting for knee, hip, shoulder, carpal tunnel, varicose vein, hand and wrist surgery. And the clinics will be held next Monday, 24th of July, between 12 and 2 at the Boston Bar in Bantry. Uh, Michael Collins's office in Skibbereen on Monday between 3 and 5. Tuesday, they'll be in Michael Collins' office in Bandon between 12 noon and 4. And on Wednesday, the 26th, this day week, they'll be in the Marion Hall in Carrigaline between 1 and 2 p.m. You do need to make an appointment, so please call 087 3922 550. Cork today on C103. And it's lovely to see some people giving shout outs to local cobblers, and long may they continue. Uh, John said there's a great cobbler in the, ma- in the mall in McCroom called Olin. Olin the Cobbler and he is so pleasant to deal uh, with. Thank you for that. Someone else says listening to you talk about cobblers I'd like uh, to give a mention to our wonderful cobbler oh, this Olin Buckley in McCroom. No job too big or too small for Olin. He does a brilliant job and he's always so cheerful and helpful. And Michael and Bantry says Patricia a lot of people in Mallow will remember a cobbler by the name of Dasher Daly. He was in Mallow in the 80s. And that's from Michael and Bantry. So he's in West Cork, but he's remembering a cobbler in Mallow. Does anybody remember Dasher Daly uh, in uh, Mallow? 0818103103. Jim says, isn't it fantastic to hear that Denise O'Sullivan is uh, fit for the World Cup? It would have been a travesty, says Jim, if she had missed out because she's played such a vital part in getting that Irish team to the World Cup. And Denise is made of strong stuff uh, coming from uh, Cork. Uh, Knocknahini was where she started off playing with the boys. It's standing to her now. She's made of stuff. She is made of strong stuff, yeah, but it would have been a travesty. It would have been, and I think by now, but you've probably all seen the video that got uh, released. It was awful, dreadful, dreadful uh, what happened to her. And I mentioned free uh, legal aid and how the Minister uh, for Justice is reviewing free legal aid and in particular how people are financially assessed for it and is there a possibility that some people could actually be paying something towards the cost of their free legal aid rather than the state picking up all the tab over 80 million spent last year. Maria says, Patricia, just on the free legal aid. As it stands at the moment, one is assessed on income and assets etc. And often a contribution has to be made by the applicant. I believe it is the legal aid for criminals rather than civil. That's the issue and that's the one that's costing a fortune. I spoke with somebody who was involved in the Legal Aid Board and this was a number of years ago and they've been doing a lot of work on this in the background. So it's this work that you're talking about that Helen McEntee is proposing. That's the work that's now coming to fruition. It's a fantastic service and hopefully now those that need it most and are financially compromised will be prioritised. 
over those who can afford their own representation or at least that they can afford to pay something towards it and that's from Maria uh, who very much sounds like she's a lady in the know thank you for that and that's it I mean we always want to make sure that free legal aid is there for the people who really need it and really can't uh, afford it so let's weed out the people that are uh, abusing the system 0818 103 103 Hi Patricia yes I remember Dasher Daly <laughs> the cobbler in Mallow he was an absolute gentleman he repaired all of our shoes back in the day so isn't it lovely to have an old memory like that and then a listener in I'm. this is a Kerry uh, listener says hi Patricia I listened with great interest to Isaac Jackman the cobbler you spoke with from Dublin I worked in Dublin for several years and then banned him and would always bring my shoes to his father for repair he also was a total gentleman always great to meet I'm so glad to hear his son is now now there and I intend to call the next time I'm in Dublin and this Kerry listener reckons that there's no cobbler in Killarney at the moment you see that is the problem when the cobblers go and that's what Isaac is is trying to push forward it will bemoan the fact when they're all gone uh, that's why he's saying we need to have some kind of an, of an apprenticeship up and running. And if we get an apprenticeship up and scheme up and running, we might encourage some young, I've got to say lads, were there any ever lassies who were cobblers? Was it always uh, men, I, I wonder? Uh, Willie the Shoemaker, somebody else says, worked for uh, Dasher Daily. That's Dasher's original shop. Is that the one on Bridge Street in Mallow? Is Is, is that the shop we're talking about? Um, and somebody else is saying I think Willie O'Connor is where Dasher's shop used to be all of them great characters their likes will never again be seen my daughter still brings her shoes from Tipperary <laughs> to be repaired by Willie O'Connor at his cobbler shop in uh, Mallow okay that's uh, well it's lovely to see that people are still going to the cobblers because that's how we keep the business going and hopefully encourage some other young people to take it up as a uh, skill can I just see because I've mentioned the Justice Minister Helen McEntee can I mention the Media Minister Catherine Martin because I listened with great interest to her uh, yesterday when she was quizzed about the number of people who've decided I'm not paying my TV licence this year after all the hoo-ha that's going on at the moment. Now she was very measured in her tone yesterday and uh, she says that it's too early to tell whether the drop-off in the number of people renewing their TV licence is a long-term or is it just a short-term issue. Now she had to concede that there was a a 31% reduction in TV licence fees for the second week in July and they're comparing it obviously, obviously to the figures for last year and that followed the first week in July that we were talking about yesterday which saw a 27% increase in people who renewed their licence for the first week of the month so that got even higher for the second week of the month and if you think about it all of this controversy began on the 22nd of June and that's when we found out that RTE had incorrectly declared the earnings for the uh, the Late Late Show uh, presenter Ryan uh, Tuberty and that's where the con- so we're not even a month yet into uh, the controversy so by the 22nd of July do we assume people whose, t- whose licence was up in June had already paid at that stage that it really was going to be the people who had to pay either on the 1st of July or had to 
pay in July that they were the first to get the opportunity to sit back and say mm, I'm going to think about this whether I'm going to pay my licence uh, ha- or not because since that all broke on the 22nd of uh, June there's been this huge intense scrutiny into our public ser- service broadcaster you know looking at governance and accounting practices and also what some people saw as waste the amount of money that was spent on hospitality but of course now there are ongoing concerns if a lot of people decide not to renew their TV licence, RTE will then suffer a huge loss in revenue if less and less people pay the €160. And you add to that, there's also the fear that with all of the controversy going on, could there be a drop of some of their advertising uh, clients? Could that happen in parallel with less people paying the uh, TV licence? And remember... All the money that's collected from the TV licence, 85% of it goes directly into uh, RTE. So yesterday, the minister, she was at another um, event in Temple Bar uh, in Dublin. And of course, there was a large attendance of the media there and everybody wanted to ask her how she felt about people not paying their TV licence. And she said she needs more data before she'll make any decision on possible interim funding for RTE in September because already now there's clamouring for RTE saying, well, look, if people aren't going to pay, the government are going to have to help us out with some interim interim in term funding and that's the word I know when Kevin Backhurst was asked about a bailout he very quickly turned around to the reporter and said it isn't a bailout it's just in term funding in other words some people um, Kevin Backhurst would call that a bailout anyway when she was asked about it she said she's going to stay in contact with RTE and in particular how their commercial revenues are in the coming months and she said that it is really important for people to pay their TV licence and she added that it was the law of the land and it is also vital if we want to continue with public service uh, broadcasting and I also saw the former communications uh, minister Richard Bruton of Fianna Gael he said early yesterday when he was asked about the decline in people paying their TV licence he says that that trend across the first two weeks of of July he says is a very worrying uh, trend he said it looks like since late June when all of this broke that it really has been a a a a decisive impact on people deciding to pay their TV uh, licence how long that will go on for, he said, remains to be seen. But he said you would have to worry that this is a trend that won't easily be uh, reversed. And he said the government's decision not to remove the licence fee and to fund RTE directly from the exchequer, he reckons that's going to have to be revisited. It has been looked at uh, before. They've always moved away from it because of the costs that would be involved. 0818103103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862. 103103. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 086-2103-103. Minions, talk to me. Cork Today on C103. The Cork Nature Network. It's an environmental charity based here in Cork. They've enlisted the help of some goats to rid an area of an invasive plant species and they're hoping it will rid it for once and for all. To chat about why they've connected with Billy's Rent-A-Goat Group I'm joined by Bill Wyman, uh, who is Chair and Director of Cork Nature Network. Good afternoon to you, Jill. 
Good afternoon. And it's great to talk to you. Now, you're going to, you want the goats to do their magic in a place called Bowmount Quarry in the city. I suppose start by telling us uh, firstly where Bowmount Quarry is and tell me a little bit about this site. Okay, well, Beaumont Quarry is located in the south of Cork City. It's near Ballin Temple. It's a disused limestone quarry that ceased operation in the 1960s. Um, it's owned by Cork City Council, so we, we're working with Cork City Council on managing the site to protect it for wildlife. Um, we've been running it since 2015, so we've got a management plan for the whole site. It's got some really important habitats. It's got a calcareous grassland habitat that we're trying to protect. And alongside that is an area of woodland, um, and there are some caves on the site. We call it the oasis in the city because it's a very, it's quite a unique site. Yeah, and, um, and, and a lovely site to have in a city. It really is, yes. And in fact, it's quite important historically because a lot of the rock that was used, that was taken from the site was actually used in the city for the um, Buick Fountain, for St. Finbar's, for the old courthouse. So, you know, it's it's got a historical significance as well. Okay, tell me about the goats and uh, what you were hoping that the goats are going to help you with. Okay, well, we're working with um, Billy, Billy's goats. Yeah. And we're trying a new different way of re- um, removing one of the invasive species called Old Man's Beard, which is a type of clematis. So the goats were there in June, having a good munch and trying to, you know, break it down. And they did amazing work in June. And then they're back there again next week um, to continue working on the site. So we're really just trying to get rid of this particular plant. Yeah. You know, to try and protect the habitats because it's a non-native plant. Yeah, and, and just yeah, I suppose explain that to people why these invasive plants, the, the trouble that they actually do in an area, the damage they actually do in an area. Well, what some of them can do is they can actually just smother the area, so they stop the other native species coming in. You know, that's it in a nutshell. You know, especially with the plants, and especially with plants like this. You know, so they can have an impact upon the biodiversity of the site. Um, because, yeah, they're stopping the other species coming in, which has an impact on other things like the birds and the insects and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And so, was there is there a lot of this old man's beard in, in the quarry? There is in this one section, which is where we've got the goats working at. So the long-term aim is to remove this old man's beard um, through, the, through the goats and try and encourage a natural regeneration of the woodland which we, you would get on the site. And when you put the goats in in June, Jill, do they settle in well? Oh, they, they, were, <laughs> they were lovely. <laughs> they were really amazing animals, you know. And yeah, so they, well, they had dinner right in front of them. Yeah. And so they just, um, they're fenced off. And William, who runs the project, is with them all the time. So they're not left there in the evening or anything like that. You know, okay. they're carefully guarded. Yeah, and they did great work. Yeah, and I know over the over the last couple of years we've we've had some wonderful stories, particularly out of West Cork, of the goats helping out, particularly with overgrown graveyards, for example. And they've done fantastic. It's it's just such a brilliant idea, isn't it? It is. Yes, you know now the goats, from what I understand, will only eat specific, you know, certain types of plants and all that. But I mean, they certainly love the invasives like the winter heliotrope. No, not the winter heliotrope, sorry. Like the old man's beard, which is great. 
You know? Yeah, which is just, yeah, because, you know, the alternative then is, I mean, uh, and I know when Peter Dowdell, who normally joins us on a Wednesday, our resident gardener, he hates the idea of anybody going out and spraying anything, even invasive species. It takes away all of that, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So that's so that's what we're really trying to avoid. You know, we really don't want anything like that, you know, on, especially in such an important site. Can people come along and see the goats in action, Jill? They can, yes. I mean, they'll be there from roughly from about nine to five, from Tuesday to Friday. Um, during the lunchtime, we will have uh, from twelve to two every day. There will be a lead walk, so people can come along and find out about what we're doing on the site, and that will be followed by a talk from William about his his project and the goats. So there'll be a chance to see conservation in action on the site. Okay, and we need to do, don't we, Jill? We need to do so much, much more of this to improve and increase biodiversity, particularly in urban areas. Exactly, and and what we're trying to highlight here is the importance of green spaces in urban areas as well, and different ways of managing these sites, but connecting them up as well. You know, often a lot of them are sort like like little isolated pockets. You know, and really wildlife just doesn't need corridors to move up and down, you know. So it really highlights that urban areas can be very, very important for biodiversity. And that's what your group at the Cork Nature Network is all about. How long are you up and running? We've been running since 2015. Okay. And, um, me- and many members? We ha- Yes, we have quite a few members. We have a great set of volunteers as well. We started off with 11 volunteers. We now have over 40. So it's really grown and people are really, you know, keen to help out and to get involved. Yeah, because I think we all know we need to do our bit, particularly environment that's around uh, around us. And you have a great website if people want to find out more. We are. We are. Now, we are updating it at the moment, so it should be properly back in about a week or two. But we do have a great website. Yeah. So there's lots of information on it. And it certainly outlines uh, the, the the work you were you were you were doing, um, and listen, we wish you good luck with the with the goats, particularly the, the goats in Beaumont Quarry. C- could you see yourself using the goats in other parts of the city? Uh, definitely, yeah. yes, definitely. You know, where I, I think you know, I think it's a great way to to get rid of you know some some of the you know these species that really shouldn't be there. You know, I think it's you know a great opportunity. And I think, you know, Billy runs a great project. William, sorry, runs a great project. He does, he does, he does. Absolutely, yeah. He's brilliant. And listen, long may he continue and long may the goats continuing to do what they do best, which is munching up all of those invasive species. Absolutely. Uh, Jill, listen, thank you. Real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon to you. And that's uh, Jill from the Cork Nature Network and corknaturenetwork.ie if you want to get an idea of the type of work that they are uh, doing. It, it's, it's, it really is fantastic and long may it continue. Now, some of your texts uh, coming into us. We're still getting in uh, calls and texts about uh, cobblers. Trish in Blackpool says there's a very good cobbler called Martin Duggan. He works out of Shandon Street in the city. She had a favourite pair of boots that she really didn't want to get rid of. So guess what? She took them into Martin Douglas on Shandon Street and he resold them for her. I mean, if you get if, and that's if you get a comfortable pair of boots or a pair of boots that you really love and a style that you really love, that's the best that's the best thing to do. Get them rehealed, resold, and they will be like new again. And then someone else says, Patricia, you're bringing back great memories today. I remember two men in Minor Row in Mill Street. Anybody else remember these men? They were cobblers, and I remember going to school a long time ago 
and you'd walk past their window and they'd be working away inside and beavering away fixing all the shoes and this listener says it's taken me back 60 years here and the two men according to this person they were called Paddy Mick and John Kelleher not a great name Paddy Mick Paddy Mick and John uh, Kelleher were they, were they brothers I wonder anyway they worked as cobblers in uh, Mill Street and it brings back great memories thank you for that Hi Patricia you mentioned free legal aid this is Pat in Mitchellstown Pat says I think there should be no free legal aid for anybody accused of murder, for drug addicts, for robbers, for rapists, says Pat. But you see, the problem you have there is, Pat, you're innocent until proved uh, guilty, uh, even for uh, murderers. Uh, but I think it should be what they're, what they're trying to do, what the Justice Minister is trying to do, is to do the assessment pro- properly so there are not people scamming, people who do have money and should and could be able to afford to either pay their own legal bill or even pay part of it. That's what they're trying to weed out of it. And uh, Dennis, delighted to hear me talking about the Irish ladies team and their start of their World Cup uh, tomorrow. It's great listening uh, to chat about the Irish women's team and in particular Denise O'Sullivan, our neighbour in Knocknahini. We're all behind her and the Irish team. They might be underdogs in Australia, but as the saying goes... It's not about the size of the dog in the fight, but rather the fight in the dog that counts. Ole, 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 ole. Era Abu. That's from uh, Dennis. Yeah, we've all, as I say, got our fingers and our toes crossed for the girls tomorrow. Almost time for me to wrap it up, but I'm just seeing this is a, a breaking story. This obviously had to be kept uh, quiet. Our own Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, has uh, this morning made an unannounced visit to Kiev. He travelled through the night and uh, he has gone, in, gone to Kiev to meet the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, Mr. Zelensky held what he called a fruitful talk uh, talks with Leo Varadkar and he went on to thank the Irish people for the ongoing assistance that we are giving to the 87,000 Ukrainian refugees that are currently living here. He said he was very grateful that Leo Varadkar had travelled to the massacre site in the northern ditch uh, district of Bucha before they held the bilateral meeting in uh, Kiev and President Zelensky said that our Taoiseach has now seen with his own eyes the consequences of Russian aggression. Uh, Leo Varadkar went on then to praise President Zelensky for what he called his remarkable leadership over the past two years adding that during his visit to Bucha he came face to face with the horror of Russian uh, actions and the Taoiseach said the world needs to ensure that Ukraine succeeds in its war with Russia in order to discourage any other countries from contemplating such an, an invasion. And as I say, before he went to Kiev, he, I'm sorry, just hours before he arrived in Kiev, seemingly there was air raid si- sirens. I mean, this is a dangerous, dangerous place for Artishak to be visiting. The air raid sirens wailed across the capital of uh, Kiev as Ukrainian air defence systems intercepted a series of Russian drone attacks which were aimed at uh, Kiev. Now he's obviously got close quarter protection uh, while he's in Ukraine. Both the Ukrainian army are protecting him along with our elite Garda response uh, uh, unit and there's photographs already coming down the news wires of Leo Varadkar at uh, one of the massacre sites in uh, Bucha and he laid a wreath 
at the site. Uh, and of course, he also met with family members whose loved ones have been killed by the Russian troops. That was during the very early days of the invasion. And, and Bucha, I think, has become synonymous with a, a series of Russian atrocities in Ukraine. And actually, it was in Bucha earlier this month that they put up a, a memorial with the names of 501 people who were killed just in in one district in uh, Bucha. So he laid a wreath to honour soldiers who had held off the Russian advances on uh, a suburb. Um, This was in the early days of the war. They were trying to uh, protect uh, Kiev at the time. So as I say, for obvious reasons, they are always, those kind of visits are always uh, unannounced. And uh, the Taoiseach is also this afternoon, he'll hold, he'll hold uh, further talks with the Ukrainian, uh, with the Ukrainian Prime Minister and the Speaker of the Parliament there. And he's also due to meet uh, members of the Irish community who are still living in the Ukrainian uh, capital. So as I say, that is just a breaking story. No doubt we'll have more about it with Barry on the news at one o'clock. OK, that's where I wrap it up for today. Before I go, I remind you to you that this Friday, if you're out and about in Mallow, make sure that you pop into Mallow Credit Union and wish them a, a happy anniversary. 60 years going is Mallow Credit Union this Friday the 21st of July and our own Nick Richards will be going along to help them celebrate with lots of giveaways, great music and so much more. So you can join Nick and the Street Fleet of Mallow Credit Union this uh, Friday between 1 and 4. That's where I leave you for today. Thanks to Bernie for producing. Nick is with you for the afternoon. Talk to you tomorrow at 10.